0: Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Naomi. I support this program, and I hope
1: you do, too.
2: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As Japanese authorities plan to freeze the Earth around the wrecked Fukushima reactors to contain radioactive water, experts say some U.S. nuclear facilities could be just as vulnerable to a similar catastrophe.
3: There are a few dozen plants on rivers or lakes which are vulnerable in the event of a dam failure to being flooded in a very short period of time as happened at Fukushima.
2: Also science has found out why some fish are more likely to contain the more
4: toxic form of mercury. But when it forms near the surface of the ocean, sunlight breaks down the methylmercury back to its common form and therefore essentially detoxifies it. But deeper in the ocean where there is no sunlight This process doesn't take place.
2: That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
5: Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios
2: in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Back in June... Barack Obama called on the EPA to begin regulating CO2 emissions from existing power plants, which emit 40% of U.S. global warming gases. The executive order came in response to 2007 Supreme Court ruling and years of climate gridlock in Congress. California Congressman Henry Waxman and other House Democrats have been calling for hearings on the science of climate change ever since Republicans won control of the lower house in 2010. Now, leaders of the House Energy and Commerce Committee have summoned representatives of 13 federal agencies for climate change hearings on September 18th. You might expect Henry Waxman to be pleased, but he has mixed
6: feelings. Well, I think the upcoming climate hearing is a positive development, but it's not a signal of change in the direction of Congress. The Republicans are in control. They've denied the science. And they don't want the administration to act, and they certainly don't want Congress to act. So they're bringing in people from the different agencies of government who are proposing regulations on their own under existing law, which gives them the authority to do it. And I think they're going to berate them. How can you talk about doing something to limit uh, pollution from coal-burning power plants? What authority do you have to do that? Uh, Why is the Department of Energy doing something to limit the efficiency of uh, refrigerators? I expect that's what they're going to do because um, that's the way they've acted for the last uh, three or four years. They've denied the science. They don't think there's a problem and they have voted over 53 times to say that we shouldn't be doing anything about the, the climate change issue.
2: A cynic might say that Republicans are calling in all these various heads of agencies and, uh, and departments to scrutinize their budgets uh, involving climate with a view towards trying to cut those budgets.
6: Well, they've already proposed cutting those budgets. They've proposed cutting the budgets of all government agencies that do any kind of regulation, also government agencies that do research. But I think they want to show their oil and coal industry constituents that they're standing up to this administration. And I think we're seeing the indication that this is just the beginning of an escalating outcry by the Republicans uh, when uh, the government acts on its own under authority of the law uh, to limit carbon and other greenhouse gases that cause climate change.
2: Now, what's the format of these hearings?
6: They've invited a lot of witnesses. I think they'll probably put them at a table, and each one will get a, a five to ten minutes to make their comments. Then we'll ask uh, questions back and forth, Republicans first, Democrats after that, then back to Republicans.
2: Uh, who will testify?
6: I haven't heard precisely who's going to testify. Uh, the head of the EPA is Gina McCarthy. Dr. Moniz is the Secretary of Energy. Both, of course, have testified before our committee and subcommittees many times.
2: Well, how much climate science will be discussed? Uh, Both uh, Gina McCarthy and, of course, formerly Professor Moniz are well uh, versed in science of climate change.
6: Well, they are indeed. And uh, we could ask them, and probably will, to talk about the science that motivates them to um, take the actions that they're taking But we ought to hear from other researchers. We ought to hear from other scientists. The overwhelming consensus is that not only are we seeing the impact of climate change, which costs us billions and billions of dollars in damage, but that we're only seeing the beginning of it because this problem is accelerating and getting much worse than anybody quite imagined. And Republicans won't uh, allow a hearing from the scientists. And that isn't because they haven't been asked, because uh, Congressman Bobby Rush, who's the ranking Democrat on the Energy Subcommittee, and I have written, I think, over 28 separate letters requesting a hearing. And you know how many answers we've gotten to our letters? None. And how many hearings have we had? None. So uh, the Republicans are in charge, and you wouldn't think there was a problem of climate change if if you listen to what they have to say.
2: Um, Congressman Waxman, what does this say uh, about uh, America's ability to deal with the public policy implications of science if one particular party is not willing to hear what scientists have to say?
6: In the past, uh, I think people had a, a reverence for science because it's not partisan. It's based on evidence. It's testing a hypothesis by looking at the realities of what we're seeing, what conclusions the evidence points to. But Republicans, some Republicans, have approached science as just another point of view, as if it's part of a political discussion. I think that's a serious mistake. This isn't the only instance where we've seen science denied or distorted. I remember when President George W. Bush was in office his Department of Health and Human Services, put on the, on the web that women who got abortions were more likely to get breast cancer. And we raised a fuss about it, asking them what scientific evidence did they have to make such a statement. And, of course, they had none. They just made it up because it fit with their ideology. So we've seen a disregard for science on the environmental side. We've seen it on the um, reproductive rights issues. They think science is just something to be used if it fits their ideology, not uh, trying to figure out the best policy based on the evidence and proceeding from that. Senator Moynihan once said, you can have different opinions, but you can't have different facts. And Republicans are trying to make different facts by ignoring the evidence. So on these climate hearings in front of the House uh, subcommittee, what do you expect will come out of all of this? Well, I hope these hearings will be positive. I think it's positive because we're talking about the climate issue. And I wish it were a signal that there's a change in the direction that Congress, in the House anyway, wants to pursue. But at least we'll hear from the administration that's made a determination under President Obama to take action, uh, not just to um, watch the consequences and pretend they're they're not real.
2: Henry Waxman is a Democratic congressman from California's 33rd
6: District. Thank you so much, Congressman. You're welcome. Good to be with you.
2: Well, it's hardly a surprise, given the highly partisan nature of U.S. politics at the moment, that Republicans have a different take on these climate hearings. David Kreutzer is the research fellow in energy, economics, and climate change at the Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank. And we called him up to ask what he thought had prompted House Republicans to call for hearings at this time.
7: I think uh, what they're seeing is a regulatory push to enact climate legislation, as it were, or to to push climate legislation. And they are worried that the science used to support some of these regulations isn't up to snuff, and I think they would like to check into that.
2: Now, Congress hasn't been able to pass uh, legislation uh, on this. So what do you think of the president's regulatory framework on climate?
7: Well, you know, his, his regulatory framework seems to be pretty much a war on coal. And if you look at the regulations, that's pretty much what we're getting, you know, some additional things. But, they, you know, they're going after coal in a variety of different ways, and pretty much nobody's building new coal plants now.
2: David, you write a, a fair amount about environmental economics. Tell us what addressing climate change would mean for our economy.
7: Well, it depends on how you address it and uh, to what level. You know, we're having climate change. We know that. We've been having it for, you know, uh, millions of years. Temperatures go up, temperatures go down, sea levels, you know, go up and down. So I think what you want to do is say, well, what do we get for the money that we spend on the different approaches to adapting or preventing, uh, you know, climate problems? If you try to simply do it all through restricting carbon dioxide, it gets very expensive, and you don't really get much bang for the buck. I mean, if we were to have fully enacted the Waxman-Markey cap and trade bill, the best high-end estimate of our likely impact on world temperatures 100 years from now is about two-tenths of a degree.
2: What do you think is the motivation of the people who are advancing what you think are uh, inappropriate models of uh, the climate performance?
7: Well, uh, you know, if you say that there's an amazing problem coming down, you're more likely to be heard than to say, hey, you know, there's really not much of a problem. You're going to get more funding to investigate uh, catastrophes than you are to investigate nothing much happening.
2: So this is the chicken little school of getting budgets, you're
7: saying? Uh, That's a pretty good description.
2: Now, the House committee that's having these hearings, um, up until now, they had refused to hold any hearings on climate change. David, what do you think uh, this might signal in terms of a shift of their perspective on the science of climate change?
7: Um, Well, I think they are more confident in the science supporting uh, the positions they've held, and it's not you know, the mindless, there's no warming, CO2 is not a greenhouse gas. I don't, I don't know any skeptics, uh, serious ones, that, that really hold that position. The question is how much warming are we having? Is it, are we heading to a catastrophe? That seems to be pretty clear we're not. And to what extent can you moderate that temperature increase and what does it cost? Or Are there other approaches, uh, other better ways to spend money to protect ourselves from hurricane damage and tornado damage and to promote economic growth?
2: No. As I understand, the proposed witness list uh, includes representatives from every major agency to talk about uh, the climate change programs and the budgets associated with that. Uh, some cynics have suggested that perhaps the House is looking for an opportunity to further cut agency action on climate change from the federal budget.
7: Um, well, I think they would want to look and see you know, what benefit you're getting from it. And if it, you're not getting much benefit and it's costing a lot, then maybe they would want to cut it. I mean, that's pretty generic you want to spend your money effectively and just calling something uh, you know a climate policy doesn't mean it actually is one doesn't mean it's an effective one and it doesn't mean it's affordable
2: now the intergovernmental panel on climate change will shortly have its latest report out which uh, gives a 95% uh, confidence that uh, humans are having an effect and the numbers they have show that uh, we may well be headed on 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 the path to catastrophe here if congress can't act uh, and a president sees uh, warnings that uh, we could be headed into catastrophe, what alternative does he or she have but to use the regulatory process?
7: Well, you know, let, let's, there's, there's a bait and switch in, in that the argument you just gave, and that is there's 95% confidence that humans are having an impact. You know, I don't know if it's 95%, but let's say it's 100%. The question is, how much impact are they having? Okay, well, and, well and, and, but wait that, a second. And that's where you don't have this huge consensus that people keep talking about. They're, they're, yeah, you can get a whole bunch of scientists to agree CO2 is a greenhouse gas and we're emitting CO2. You can't get this 93 or 97% or whatever to say that we are heading towards you know, 7 feet of sea level rise in 100 years or something like that.
2: Yeah, I would say that uh, the science that I've been shown involving the IPCC is pretty firm about the range that we'll get on the two-degree rise that international uh, agreements say that we're we're trying to limit things to. Uh, Let's say that the scientists who say that we're headed to catastrophe, there's a 10% chance they're right. Is that an appropriate risk for our civilization?
7: Um, I don't think there's a 10% chance that it's right.
2: David Kreutzer is a research fellow in energy economics and climate change at the Heritage Foundation. David, thanks so much for taking this time with me today.
7: Hey, thanks for giving me a chance to give my view.
2: Coming up, why some fish contain more toxic mercury than others. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The news coming out of Japan about attempts to clean up the wrecked Fukushima nuclear power station and contain the tons of radioactive water leaking into the ground and the ocean is not reassuring. Now the Japanese government is pledging nearly a half a billion dollars to try to freeze the ground under the melted-down reactors to try to control the leaks that way. It sounds like a desperation play, so we turn to a senior scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists, Edwin Lyman, to find out whether this could work and what the condition of the plant is at the
3: moment. The situation seems to be pretty bad and is getting worse. The uh, plant is leaking radioactive material every day into the ocean, and right now the plant's operator, TEPCO, is unable to stop it.
2: Now, the Japanese government says that they, uh, they want to build a wall of ice around the
3: reactor. Uh,
2: how would that work?
3: The idea is you would create essentially artificial permafrost. The idea is to embed pipes about 100 feet deep in a ring around the damaged reactors and run coolant through those pipes. So uh, essentially you're running a refrigeration unit that would slowly freeze the soil and it would turn into an impenetrable block of ice.
2: How long would the ground need to be kept frozen? Uh, To what extent would generations in the future still be trying to keep the refrigerator running?
3: Well, that really depends on the timeline for actually cleaning up and and stabilizing the site. So we we are talking about potentially decades.
2: I think people are probably not familiar with this ice wall technology you're talking about. How common is it, uh, and at what scale?
3: It is a technology that's been used in other applications for a long time, particularly during mining and excavation, but it has not been used on a large scale to deal with a situation this delicate involving radioactive material and not for the kind of time scale that we're talking about. So I think it really is uh, uncharted waters with regard to Fukushima.
2: And by the way, where does the electrical energy come from to freeze all that soil? Uh, I understand that Japan shut down uh, the vast majority of its nuclear power plants.
3: Yeah, the irony is that they will need a significant amount of power to operate this refrigeration system. And uh, right now, Japan has to depend heavily on imported natural gas for a lot of its electricity.
2: Now, I know the government and the utility TEPCO have tried some other options to contain the leak, but everything does seem to come up short. This wall of ice sounds kind of like an act of desperation. What's your take on it?
3: I think that's a good description. Uh, There aren't any good options in in dealing with this mess. You just have to come up with a way to uh, divert groundwater so that it does not run through the site and pick up radioactivity. And there are only a few ways you can do that, digging trenches and filling it with some sort of impermeable material. Ice is one option, but it seems to be, I would think, a slightly more unstable option because you do need to maintain active cooling uh, for a long period of time.
2: Now, at the same time that things are, are going on at Fukushima... The Energy Corporation has announced plans to close the Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant next year. Why are they doing that?
3: The uh, economics of nuclear power in the United States is very precarious right now. The price of natural gas is extremely low, primarily because of the availability of gas from fracking. And the nuclear power plants uh, that are running today are simply unable to compete in many cases because of the ongoing operations and maintenance costs just to run a nuclear power plant safely.
2: What about the experience at Fukushima? Has the Nuclear Regulatory Commission here in the United States changed uh, the safety rules as a result of that accident?
3: Yes, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has made certain changes and introduced some new requirements for Uh, reactors, especially the type of plant at Fukushima, which is the same as as Vermont Yankee, a General Electric Mark I boiling water reactor, and more changes are in the works. And even though the industry has tried very hard to limit the scope of those changes, there still is a significant price tag associated with them, and Entergy did cite the cost of post-Fukushima upgrades as one of the reasons why they're shutting the plant down frankly, to have nuclear power that's safe enough uh, so that we don't have another Fukushima. It simply may not be affordable.
2: Where in the United States are there nuclear power reactors in analogous positions to Fukushima? In other words, vulnerable to earthquakes and, and such?
3: Well, I think in the United States, the biggest threat is actually from upstream dams. There are a few dozen plants on rivers or lakes, which are vulnerable in the event of a dam failure to being flooded in a very short period of time, as happened at Fukushima. And the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has known about the danger of dam failures for many years, but it has been taking a very, very long time to try to resolve these issues.
2: Where are these dams that you're concerned about?
3: One plant which is one of the most vulnerable is called Oconee in South Carolina. There are three reactors there, and the uh, plant's owner, Duke Energy, has been sparring with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission for many years about how to reduce the risk of flooding from dam failure. still unresolved. The industry simply isn't prepared to deal with nuclear accidents before they happen or their aftermath. And it's that lack of preparation and that mindset that we don't have to worry that it can't happen here that I think uh, continues to pose a danger to people all over the world.
2: Ed Lyman is senior scientist at the Global Security Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Thanks so much, Ed, for taking this time.
3: Thanks for the opportunity.
2: The National Academy of Sciences just released a report detailing federal efforts to rebuild depleted fish stocks and found mixed results. But in the Pacific Northwest, scientists have seen a considerable recovery of stocks of pink salmon. Just now, hundreds of thousands of pink salmon are swimming back to spawn in the rivers and streams there. But it's not always a happy outcome, especially for many fish that choose the White River east of Tacoma. Thousands of them are dying due to an outdated dam and the inability of federal officials to transport the salmon around the obstacles to safe spawning grounds upriver. From the public media collaborative EarthFix, Ashley Ahern has the story.
1: If you follow the Puyallup River inland from Commencement Bay and hang a left up the White River, you'll eventually come to the Buckley Diversion Dam. It's a small dam, only about 15 feet high, but it's very old and very dangerous for fish. Russ Ladley stands in the shallows below the dam with a haunted look in his eye. He's a fisheries biologist with the Puyallup Indian tribe. Pink salmon carcasses litter the rocks around his feet, and he nudges one with his boot.
4: This is a female right here, full of
1: eggs. The silty waters writhe with fish still fighting. Some of them are visibly battered and lethargic. Others continue to heave themselves onto the lower section of the dam, their bodies scraping over old exposed nails.
2: But yeah, this goes on 24 hours a day, seven days a week until the fish are just depleted of all their energy reserves and then the current and the color of the water basically hides the bodies and they will be scattered downstream.
1: Ladley estimates that up to 200,000 fish will die here in the next month during the height of the Pink Salmon Run. There's no hydropower being generated at this small dam. The Army Corps traps fish here and then loads them into trucks and drives them around a much larger dam six miles upriver. That dam was built in the 1940s for flood protection without any way for fish to get around it. The recovery of salmon in this river depends on their ability to get above these dams to spawn. But the Buckley Dam hasn't been updated since the 40s, and the fish kills have gotten worse in the last decade, as pink salmon have started coming up the White River by the hundreds of thousands. Scientists aren't exactly sure why these fish are rebounding in Puget Sound, as other types of salmon suffer. But Russ Ladley says this old trap-and-haul facility can't handle all the pink salmon, nor can it sort out the endangered Chinook, Steelhead, and Bull Trout that also come up this river.
2: It is no longer effective. These pink runs have kind of come out of nowhere, um, and they've overwhelmed the system. There are more fish here now than the corps can effectively move.
1: 12 miles upriver from where Russ Ladley was standing, a truck backs up to a long metal chute and opens its rear hatch. Out pours 1,200 gallons of water and about 300 pink salmon. These fish were trapped down at the Buckley Dam. Now they're being released into the upper reaches of the White River, free to spawn anywhere from here up to the foothills of Mount Rainier. It's a critical part of their life cycle. The Army Corps spends an extra $600,000 moving the massive influx of pink salmon around these dams. They've added four more trucks that operate around the clock. That's allowed them to move up to 20,000 fish a day but the tribes estimate there are more than double that arriving right now.
5: We're at our capacity, so if there are more, we're we're going to do our best to move that backlog.
1: Fred Goetz is a biologist with the Army Corps of Engineers. He acknowledges that the trap and haul facility isn't up to the task of moving all the fish that get stuck below the dam. Fully replacing the Buckley Dam would cost close to $80 million. Goetz says the Corps doesn't have that kind of money right now. Instead, it hopes to spend about half that amount and replace the old dam, but not improve the fish trap there.
5: We're doing everything we can right now, especially when we don't have a lot of funding, and we may not see much in the future as well.
1: The Muckleshoot and Puyallup tribes say replacing the dam isn't enough. The old fish trap also needs to be replaced. That way, the tribes can focus recovery efforts on endangered Chinook and bull trout that get mixed in with the hundreds of thousands of pink salmon in the river. Don Jerry is a member of the Muckleshoot Tribe and serves on the Tribal Fish Commission. He's standing next to the Buckley Dam, where salmon are dying as they wait to be transported upriver.
4: We need to take care of them, we're trying to rebuild them, and the federal government isn't doing their part. They're the ones that caused the problem of the decline in salmon. We're left with the burden of trying to rebuild it.
1: The Army Corps expects that it could take up to eight years for this dam to be replaced. And as of right now, they're not planning on building a new fish trap. I'm Ashley Ahern on the White River.
2: Ashley reports with the Pacific Northwest Public Media Collaborative, EarthFix. There are photos and video at our website, LOE.org. Now, eating fish can be beneficial to your health, as long as the fish you choose isn't laced with contaminants, such as mercury. The body can metabolize small amounts of mercury, but too much is toxic to the brain and nervous system, and children and fetuses are most vulnerable. For years, scientists have noticed that deep-sea fish contain more mercury than fish from shallower waters. Now, a paper published in Nature Geoscience explains why different fish have different amounts of mercury. Joel Bloom is a professor of geochemistry at the University of Michigan and co-author of the paper. Welcome to Living on Earth. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. So, your most recent study was about the toxic mercury found in fish What did you notice about the different fish in your study?
4: Well, prior to this particular study, uh, a colleague of mine had noticed that the deeper that fish lived in the ocean, the higher their concentrations of mercury were in their tissues. And so we wanted to understand why that was. And the study that we've just done was really focused on that problem.
2: So why is it that these fish have different amounts of mercury depending on how deep they swim in the ocean?
4: So the key to understanding mercury is that there are several different forms of mercury in the environment. And there's one form that is taken up into fish and that is most toxic, which is called methylmercury. And what we found in our study is that methylmercury is formed in the ocean at a variety of different depths in the ocean. But when it forms near the surface of the ocean, sunlight breaks down the methylmercury back to its common form and therefore essentially detoxifies it. But deeper in the ocean, where there is no sunlight, this process doesn't take place, and so the toxic form of mercury can build up and can be incorporated into the food web and ultimately into fish. Where does the mercury in the fish come from? In general, most of the mercury that's in the ocean uh, came from the atmosphere and was deposited into the ocean in rainfall. And so the next question would be why is there mercury in the atmosphere? And the main source of mercury to the atmosphere is the combustion of coal that we use to produce energy.
2: So most of the mercury in the atmosphere uh, is not this toxic methyl mercury. Uh, how does it get that
4: way? The inorganic mercury that's in the atmosphere uh, is processed by bacteria, which turn it into methyl mercury. One of the things that we found in our study is that this processing or this this methylation um, can happen in the open ocean, which we didn't previously realize. How
2: does the mercury affect the fish?
4: As far as we know, the mercury doesn't have a direct effect on the fish's behavior or health. At the levels that uh, it's found in fish, it certainly uh, can affect humans who eat the fish, but the fish themselves don't seem to be affected by the mercury.
2: And these are fish that you 've done your research on that are fish that we're likely to eat, right
4: yeah, we, we looked at a whole range of fish. we looked at nine different species of fish, and, and among those are several different types of tuna, swordfish, um, and a number of other commonly eaten fish from the Pacific Ocean. You
2: studied fish in the Pacific. How do the mercury levels in the Atlantic uh, Atlantic fish compare to that
4: well uh, they 're similar there's a a recent study that compared mercury in the, the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean, and it seems that mercury in the Atlantic over time is actually decreasing somewhat, which uh, is believed to be uh, the effect of reduced emissions of mercury from North America, whereas mercury in the Pacific Ocean is on the increase due to increased emissions from the Asian continent.
2: And that will be burning of coal, then?
4: Exactly. That's uh, that's the main source uh, of mercury that's coming to the atmosphere from Asia.
2: So by the way, uh, Joel, from your research, which fish were the most loaded with mercury?
4: The fish that have the highest level that we studied are swordfish. And uh, swordfish are top predators and they also live deep in the ocean and that kind of double whammy gives you the the highest levels. And those are fish that um, one really has to consider how much they eat because the exposure to mercury is really quite significant.
2: What do you hope comes out of this study, Joel?
4: Well, what we've really done is improved our understanding of the whole cycle of mercury, of, of how it gets into the marine environment, how it becomes toxic, and, and where it's taken up in the food chain. And so by having a better understanding of this process, you know, we hope that we can uh, inform people about which fish should be avoided and, and which fish have lower levels of mercury and, and would be better choices for consumption.
2: Joel Bloom is a geochemistry professor at the University of Michigan who traces toxic metals through the environment. Joel, thanks for taking the time with me today.
4: You're very welcome. It was a pleasure.
2: One of the great joys of life in the American South can be getting to know and understand your neighbors really well. Commentator Pat Priest of Athens, Georgia, though, Found the way some of them behave is alternately delightful and off putting.
8: I caught my neighbors in our pool some weeks ago, two of them bathing. I slipped back into the shadows of my den and pulled out my binoculars. My husband and I bought a better pair just for this reason spying on the neighbors is endlessly fascinating. I don't know where they spend the winter. The parents fly in sometime in the spring to ready their home. Only when the weather warms do we see the mom and her plump babies out and about, hunched, and I see her watching us, eagle-eyed. She's often gorging on some kind of meat, ripping, ripping, head back pulling. I shout hello to them sometimes, but the mother only shrieks to her youngsters to stay back. I'm wary of them, too. When my mom visited with her tiny chihuahua mix, I never let the pup outside without supervision. Through the binoculars, I study one of the youngsters. It looks like he has yellow tights on. They all have the loveliest breasts like vanilla ice cream streaked with caramel. Their toenails, their beaked noses could rip me to shreds. I see this one scratching his face. That has got to hurt. They're big, maybe 18 inches tall. Cooper's hawks, I think. I get some of my best nature watching in while I'm brushing my teeth standing at a window that looks out at the woods. Once I saw one of the hawks sitting on the fence, minding its own business. Suddenly, a squirrel rushed at him, running along the fence top, appearing out of nowhere. The hawk exploded in flight. What instinct or desperate courage propelled that squirrel? Another time, I watched as a hawk, maybe in a grudge match, raced after a squirrel which circled round and round a tree trunk. I had seen squirrels chase each other in tight circles and figured it was only playful or fueled by romance. That practice paid off. The hawk couldn't turn in such spirals, and the squirrel got away that time. This year the hawks have moved into our blueberry patch and we didn't even need to cover our blueberries to keep birds out as about 80% of a Cooper's hawk's diet consists of birds. The hawks are like scarecrows that suddenly pounce. Sometimes I see the red and dun-colored feathers of their victims. I'd like to shout up at them, Can't we all be vegans here? Thoreau wrote, I love a broad margin to my life. Our woods are a green and leafy margin that provides astonishing sights and sustains my neighbors, owls, bats, salamanders, inchworms, and more, whether they're passing through or live here year-round. I don't see or hear the hawks much these days, a sure sign that summer is waning. I look at all the wild creatures and think, rest a while on your journey, or make yourself at home. I hope these woods provide shelter for many generations of your family. Pat Priest teaches
2: nature writing and dreams up fundraising events for nonprofits in Athens, Georgia. Thanks to Neil Priest for production assistance. Coming up, it's harvest time in much of the U.S., and for some folks, when it comes to tomatoes, Bigger is better.
5: That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. On April
2: 17th, a chemical fertilizer plant in the town of West Texas blew up. The explosion killed 15 people, wounded over 150, and prompted nationwide questions about the hazards of chemical plants, particularly those that handle fertilizers. But when a team of reporters at the Dallas Morning News tried to find out how often accidents like the one in Texas occur, they discovered that no regulators are keeping track. Daniel Lathrop is a staff reporter and data specialist at the Dallas Morning News.
9: Initially, we had a simple question. How often have things like what happened in West happened elsewhere? What have been the warnings leading up to it? How could this have been prevented? What do we know? And so the most basic question of those was, how often has this happened before? And we couldn't find out. And we talked to agencies and we gathered data And we increasingly realized that no one knew. So is there any government
2: agency at any level that's tasked specifically with the collection and analysis of data on chemical storage or processing facilities?
9: No, no, there isn't, Uh, which seems shocking. But it's split between OSHA, the EPA, the Department of Homeland Security, state agencies of various kinds, and Often simply left in the hands of local fire marshals, local fire departments.
2: So, why don't uh, potential regulators and companies want to know what's going on?
9: We had trouble answering that question. Environmental groups that we talked to suggest that it's pressure from industry. Other experts that we talked to have said that industry certainly has no interest in promoting this, but hasn't necessarily opposed it either. One of the things uh, an EPA official who'd been involved in that effort in the mid-1980s said essentially, you know, different people come in and they lose interest in what somebody else was doing and it's not necessarily their priority.
2: Well, back in uh, 1986, the Emergency Planning and Community Right to Know Act was passed in the wake of that huge chemical disaster that killed uh, thousands of people in Bhopal, India uh, when the uh, Union Carbide plant exploded. And that legislation, as I understand it, requires companies to disclose information about dangerous chemicals that they store and to calculate worst-case scenarios so that nearby communities can plan for disaster. That law is on the books. What's happening with it?
9: Well, since then, there have been a lot of rollbacks. There's been a concerted effort from a variety of sources to make that information hard to get and hard to access, There's no real data verification or confirmation that goes on with any of what gets reported. Most of it is reported only to state agencies, and again, the state agency here in Texas told us, well, we collect it, but we don't have the authority to do anything with it.
2: One of the things that uh, we found that was interesting about that Emergency Planning and Community Right to Know Act is that only certain chemicals are regulated uh, under that, and it, the list doesn't include that fertilizer, the ammonium nitrate that blew up at the West Fertilizer Company.
9: Yes, in fact, ammonium nitrate in federal law and regulation has a very special status. It's one of a small number of chemicals that not just isn't regulated, but has special sort of anti regulatory status where the EPA is actually prevented from regulating it under some circumstances. For example, It's illegal for federal and state environmental agencies to regulate ammonium nitrate when it is for direct sale to the consumer, in this case generally farmers. So ammonium nitrate fertilizer, like the kind that was mixed and sold at West, is in fact not required to be dealt with under EPCRA if it is for direct sale to the consumers. In the case of West, they chose to disclose it anyway. Uh, it's not clear to us whether they actually had to.
2: Now, Ammonium nitrate, uh, of course, it's a fertilizer, but you know, famously, it's quite explosive. Uh, the Oklahoma City bombers, for
9: example, used it.
2: It seems kind of amazing that there's no record being kept of where the stuff is stored or what's happened in terms of accidents.
9: It is amazing. We can't understand why this particular chemical has had sort of regulatory kryptonite. There have been major disasters involving this either uh, deliberate terrorist attacks or major accidents that have happened quite a few uh, going back 70 years in the United States.
2: In your story, you wrote, uh, I believe you quoted uh, Sam Manman. He's a nationally recognized uh, chemical safety expert who told you, we can track the gross national product to the second and third decimal, but there's no reliable way of tracking even simple things like how many chemical accidents happen He recently testified on Capitol Hill. What appetite do you detect in Washington to take on this issue?
9: We've detected no appetite in Washington to take on this issue. It's a kind of boring issue. It's something as simple as knowing what has happened so that you can make intelligent decisions about it. In the mid-80s, the EPA took a stab at this. Uh, They created a program, a pilot program, to track these, uh, and that was basically not very successful, and it was not renewed afterwards.
2: You said this is boring, but, you know, the disaster at West Texas was far from boring.
9: I agree. I think it's incredibly important. I don't think that we can make good decisions as a public. I don't think that we can set proper regulations on companies. I don't think that we can make any real decisions if we don't know what it is that we're making decisions about. The things that are not being collected as data are frequently horrifying accidents that kill people, uh, that maim people, that destroy property, that lead to neighborhoods or cities being evacuated. But no one in Washington wants to talk about how to keep track of it.
2: Daniel Lathrop is a staff reporter and data specialist with the Dallas Morning News. Thanks for taking the time with me today, Dan.
9: Pleasure to be here,
2: Steve. For many gardeners, this is the best time of the year when they get to harvest their eggplants and peppers and cabbages and, above all, tomatoes and show them off at harvest festivals and county fairs. And even for those less expert with the spade and the trowel, nothing can beat the sight and smell of vines laden with big boys and aromas and sweet 100s. The most desirable of all tomatoes are those heirloom varieties in all imaginable colors and shapes. The deep red and pink brandy wines, the dark Cherokee purples, the black crims, and the stripy green zebras. Reporter Jeff Young decided to investigate the history behind one of his favorites, a tomato with an especially peculiar name.
0: And he discovered a story behind it as colorful as the fruit itself. Where I grew up in West Virginia, old-timers called them mortgage lifters. They're tasty without being acidic, and the flattened pinkish fruits get big. Really big. I'm talking a pound or two apiece. The best of them carried a longer name, Radiator Charlie's Mortgage Lifter Tomato. I often wondered about that name. So did Jeff McCormick. McCormick runs a seed catalog company from his home in Charlottesville, Virginia. He specializes in rare lines of heirloom plants and seeds passed down through families and friends.
10: But you know, when it's being passed down in a family for 200 years, there must be something good about it.
0: In the mid-80s, McCormick got his hands on some tomato seeds and a heck of a story. It came in the form of a scratchy old tape recording of a conversation between Ed Martin of Virginia and his grandfather, the originator of the mortgage lifter tomato. I'm
10: sitting at 860 Lee Street talking to my grandfather, M.C. Biles, and he'd
7: get mad if anybody said it was Marshall Cletus Biles.
0: Marshall Cletus Biles preferred to go by M.C., or just Charlie. Tape is tough to hear. Cars, trains, and at one point an ice cream truck interfere. But it rewards the careful listener. Martin tries to keep his granddad on topic. He wants to know the origin of the mortgage lifter tomato. Look, didn't you tell me there were five tomatoes that made that thing? Biles talks about the tomato all right, but not right away. He wanders in his recollection, as 85-year-olds are wont to do, he talks about cars he's owned, jobs he's worked, places he's lived. And what emerges is the story of a truly remarkable life. The grandson asks how Charlie got started with gardening. Biles tells him it was when his mother sent him to work in the cotton fields of North Carolina. He was four years old.
10: Brother come out and says, come out, what do you want? Say, you going to work. No, I'm too little to work. <laughs> no,
7: you're not. I had to go out and start picking cotton.
0: As a young man in the National Guard, Biles took up wrestling and got so good he went on a wrestling tour of towns in Appalachia, where it's called wrestling. The pay was a dollar for every minute he lasted in the ring.: What he did if he didn't throw you in 10 minutes, he'd give you a dollar a minute. And I never lost very few times. Biles learned to pilot small planes and flew airmail routes. He loved fixing planes and inventing things. He once came up with a new kind of garden tiller, but didn't think to get a patent. He found business success as an auto mechanic in the rugged hills of Logan, West Virginia, where heavy coal and timber trucks constantly blew out radiators grinding up the steep grades.
10: And I think that's where he acquired his name, Radiator Charlie.
0: That's seed saver Jeff
10: McCormick. Incidentally, the shop was located at the foot of a large mountain where the trucks had to roll back down the mountain to his shop after the radiator blew. Location,
0: location, location. location. He sounds like the, the classic American tinkerer.
10: Exactly. And, and the beauty of it is that he did this all without formal education.
0: Well, I've always had a, a mind of doing things
10: that nobody else couldn't do. I've never been to school today in my life, but anything I ever wanted to do, i done it.
0: Sometime in the early 40s, radiator Charlie Biles wanted to build a better tomato. Better. You remember, this is a story about a tomato, right? Well, this is how he did it.
4: What he did is take a plants and put in a circle and put one in the center.
0: McCormick has studied this part of the tape carefully and says Biles invented an unorthodox but elegant system.
10: Well, he, um, he started with four varieties of tomatoes and he placed a tomato called German Johnson in the center of a ring of ten tomatoes. All these tomatoes were the largest seeds he could find in the country at the time. So, he would go around to the other tomatoes, collect pollen in the in the uh, baby's ear syringe, and squirt it on the flowers of the German Johnson. And then he would save the seed. And put it on it, in the scent. After seven years, he was he felt he had a stable tomato with all the qualities as he was looking for. And um, once he satisfied with that, he never worked with any other tomato plants, did any, any other plant breeding, but he really ran with it after after he developed it.
0: Ran all the way to the bank. Turns out radiator Charlie Biles had quite a knack for marketing and sold tomato seedlings for a buck apiece, a lot of money for a little plant in those days. He sold enough of them to pay off the mortgage on his house.
4: I didn't pay but uh, $6,000 for the home, and I paid most of it off the tomato farm.
0: So there you have it, Radiator Charlie's Mortgage Lifter Tomato. McCormick says the story is more than just a good yarn. When he put it in the seed catalog, it attracted curious gardeners who grew the tomato, saved the seed, and, perhaps unwittingly, helped keep the strain alive. A small victory for preserving genetic diversity at a time when most agriculture is heading toward a homogenized industrial scale. And McCormick finds something else of value in these seed stories— something a little harder to pin down.
10: What I'm trying to do is also sort of save the soul behind these seeds, the thin line that extends from one generation to another. And each, the people are connected with the seeds. Culture and agriculture are inexorably intertwined. They're like two sides of the same coin.
0: MC Radiator Charlie Biles died at the ripe old age of 97. At the time of his talk with his grandson, he had already outlived many of his friends and family. He wondered aloud why he had lived so long.
4: What left me here all these years for some purpose? I don't know what it is. Maybe it was that tomato.
0: <laughs> maybe it was that tomato. And maybe that's not so bad. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Charlottesville, Virginia.
2: To see pictures of Radiator Charlie and his mortgage-lifter tomato, and to learn more about heirloom seeds, visit our website... LOE.org.
10: When I die, don't bury me in a box in a cemetery. Out in the garden, be much better. And I could be pushing up homegrown tomatoes, homegrown tomatoes, homegrown tomatoes.
8: tomatoes.
2: Next week on Living on Earth, rethinking refrigeration using a very old method cooling with CO2.
10: Technology is the key for us. We've found a way to address a greenhouse gas problem using
5: a greenhouse gas itself. A cool way to cool,
2: next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week with an insect orchestra. Lang Elliott and Will Hershberger recorded this insect concerto on a forested hillside in Land of Lakes, Kentucky. It features the raspy song of the common true katydid, and appears on their CD, Songs of the Insects. on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Ponce Rutch, Erin Weeks, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Jennifer Marquis, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. And congratulations to Bobby. She just got married. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living Earth, And we tweet from at Living Honor. I'm Steve Kerwood.
5: Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by a friend of the nation, where you can read such environmental writers as Wen Stevenson, Bill McKibben, Mark Hertzgard, and others at thenation.com. This is PRI, Public Radio International.
6: PRI, Public Radio International.